0: TheYeshiva.net Allow me to begin with an old Jewish anecdote about a fellow who really wanted more than anything else. He wanted his own boat. Problem is, his wife didn't want. And as much as he begged and nudged and pleaded, she kept on refusing. And finally he decided... He needs his own yacht. He doesn't care about what his wife says. And he decided he is buying one regardless. He bought it. She found out about it. She was quite upset. (laughs) They weren't such affluent people. He used up all of their savings, all of their money to buy this yacht. She felt it was a mishagas. It was completely not needed. In order to appease her, to calm her down, he says, listen, I'll tell you what. In the spirit of compromise... I will allow you, my dear wife, to name the boat. You can give the name. Being a good sport, she accepted, she conceded. She said, everything will be fine from now on. I won't keep any grudges against you. You let me name the boat, we're good. When her husband went to the dock for the first voyage, the median voyage of this boat, this is the name he saw painted in big words on the side of the boat for sale. Tonight, we commemorate a very unique and historic milestone. It's been 70 years since the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, assumed the leadership of what was then a relatively small Hasidic community known as Chabad Lubavitch. Its origins in Belarus, what was then called White Russia. A little town, you could visit it today, it's a very little shtetl called Liogna. Over there, it was in 1777, not long after the American Revolution, when the founder of Chabad, Rabbi Shnei Zalman of Lihadi, began to teach and expound on the teachings that came to be known as Chabad Hasidus, The Altireb, Rabbi Shnei in the Baal HaTanya, was one of the greatest minds in Jewish history. He is the author of the extraordinary work, Shulchan Aruch HaRav, Special Code of Jewish Law, author of the Tanya, author of many, many other extraordinary works, both in Jewish mysticism and in Jewish law. An extraordinary composer, a mystic, and a great leader, a prolific writer, and one of the most powerful minds in Jewish history, revolutionizing the landscape of Jewish thought, synthesizing the rational and mystical streams of Torah into a unified, comprehensive program for life. But this was the 1700s in a little shtetl in Liyazna. Seven generations later, in the year 1950, the 10th day of Shabbat, Shabbos morning, 10 to 8, Parshas Bo, on the second floor of 770 Eastern Parkway in Brooklyn, the great 6th Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Schneerson, the captain of the ship of Russian Jewry during its most turbulent era in history. He was the man who remained back in the Soviet Union, leading the millions and millions of Jews in Russia, Under Lenin, Stalin, until he himself was arrested, sentenced to death, then commuted to 10 years of exile until he was liberated in 1927 and left the Soviet Union, but continued to lead it from afar and created an, an underground network of Hasidim dedicated to Jewish life and to preservation of Jewish life. He made it out of Russia, he made it out of Poland in 1940, came to New York. And passed away at the age of sixty-nine, just a few months before he turned seventy, on the tenth day of Shvat, Shabbos morning, as I said, ten to eight in his home, the second floor of seven seventy. And he was buried the next day, Sunday, the eleventh of Shvat, Tovshin Yud, nineteen fifty. This year the calendar falls out exactly in the same way, and because the original Yartzah had the Rebbe. Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak, the Rebbe Rayatz, passed away on Shabbos morning, Parshas by the 10th of Shabbat. The future of Chabad then was very, very much in doubt. Nobody knew what will happen. Whenever a Rebbe passes away, it's, it's devastating. The relationship between Chasidim Hasidim and a Rebbe is so deep, it's so profound. There is so much love there, there is so much dedication there. On both sides, it's reciprocal that the death, the passing of a Rebbe shakes up the community and the disciples and the followers in extremely profound ways, not easy to articulate in words. But it was one year later, on the 10th of Shvat, 1951, exactly 70 years ago, when his son-in-law would become the seventh Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Rebbe, as he came to be known in the Jewish world and in the larger world, took the reins of a very small community, barely recovering from the horrors of the Holocaust and the horrors of communist Russia. Many Chabad Chassidim were still stuck in the Soviet Union. They would die there, they were exiled there. Some would come out in the 60s, some would come out in the 70s, some would come out in the 80s, and some would not come out. And the Rebbe took the small community and turned it into a blazing, trailblazing force for Jewish continuity and for rejuvenation and for an unprecedented renaissance of Yiddishkeit just six years after the liberation of Auschwitz and Birkenau, after the greatest darkness that would befall human history. And Jewish history, in all times. Not many people understood the Rebbe's language, his vocabulary, his vision, his perspective. But the young were listening, and he touched their souls. And slowly, an army began to develop. An army of people, whose territory and focus would be the entire world. And the mission statement was very clear. To put it in the Rebbe's words, I heard it myself from him. So, To conquer the world, but not for a particular king, or Rebbe, or monarch, or leader, but to make it a world that belongs to the Creator. lo a world in which the divine holiness and infinite love and goodness will be manifest. As we say in the Aleinu three times a day, to repair the world under the kingdom of Hashem, to reveal in our world the consciousness of Ein Aid Mulvade, the truth that we are all one, we are all interconnected, we are all integrated. To bring a world from a state of concealment, fragmentation, divisiveness, to a world of guula, of redemption, and of oneness, of holiness. A world in which I look at you, and you look at me, and we look at everyone around us, and we could see that we are all one. We are all aspects of divine oneness, of divine infinity. This was the mission. Every corner of the world, every Jew, every human being, We want to reveal their inner godliness, their inner goodness. Because when I can reveal the inner godliness in me and you can reveal the inner godliness in you, then together we create a world of oneness in which we are all a manifestation of divine energy in this world. This became the great mission statement of the Rebbe to bring the Shechina, to bring the divine presence down to earth. To revolutionize our planet with a state of Gula consciousness. Not just a transformation of this detail or that detail. No, a transformation of the entire landscape. People wondered because initially it was hard to think that the Rebbe would have such a vision. It's like after the Holocaust, all Jews can ask for is leave us alone, let us rebuild our lives, let us rebuild our families. Let us try to make ends meet. If we can rebuild a school and a camp and a community, that was already a great miracle. After the destruction of European Jewry, who could think of anything else but survival? That's the nature of people. The Rebbe was very unique in this sense. It's really what set him apart. Yes, He wanted to rebuild the community and help rebuild all the communities. But not just rebuild. The Rebbe felt that our generation is ripe for a complete takeover. A complete takeover of goodness. A complete takeover of godliness. He breathed and lived every day of his leadership and of his life with those words that we say on Rosh Hashanah during the prayers. Where we ask God and we say, let every created being know that you have created him. Let every form know that you formed him. Let every living organism that has a living breath in its nostrils declare God the Lord of Israel is the king and his leadership and love pervades all of existence. In other words, let each and every one of us become aligned with our truest essence. Let each and every one of us align our postures with our true infinity, Allow yourself to perceive yourself not as a small shmata, as an inconsequential, valueless person, but really to realize that each and every one of us is an indispensable note in the divine cosmic symphony, that each and every one of us has a role to play, has a special musical note that needs to resonate and vibrate throughout the entire planet and throughout the entire cosmos, that each person has their unique mission. Every person is an ambassador of God, an ambassador of love and light and hope and healing and authenticity and integrity and wisdom and redemption. And each and every Jew was sent down to this planet Earth to illuminate the world, to touch souls, to bring Hashem back into this world. And for the Rebbe, this was reality. This wasn't just a far-fetched dream. This was reality. If you're going to business, if you're going into education, if you're going into medicine, if you're going into academics, if you're going into politics, if you're going into business, if you're going into law, if you're going into any vocation, any profession of the world, whether you're a stay-at-home dad or a stay-at-home mom, whether you're an artist or a writer or a communicator or a business person or a plumber or a tailor or a dentist or an electrician or a teacher. It doesn't matter what, but God has chosen you to be a conduit for infinity through your job, through your work, to bring people closer to Hashem to bring people closer to themselves, to create stronger families, stronger communities, a stronger nations, a stronger world. And what creates a stronger nation and a stronger world? When we understand how connected we are, when we understand that we are responsible for each other and we're responsible to our Creator, when we comprehend and understand our true inner spiritual power and how much light and goodness exists at our core and that each and every one of us was chosen by Hashem, by providence to be placed exactly where we were placed at the time of history when we live with those unique resources and gifts and capabilities and challenges and virtues and vices and blessings and difficulties and opportunities to be able to fulfill our mission in the world of lighting up my home, my body, my life, my corner of the universe, my community, with the light of Torah, with the light of mitzvahs, with the light of morality, with the light of Hashem. And together, we create a new world. Tirelessly, at every address, every Shabbos, every Yom Tif, every holiday, every letter, almost every letter, The Rebbe urged, inspired, encouraged, motivated. He would tell people, you don't know your power, you don't know who you are. You think you're small, you think you're petty, you think you're just an angry old man or old woman, you think you're just a small, inconsequential person. You don't realize who you are. This changes everything, because when you have a Rebbe, who believes in you, when you have a teacher, a mentor, a shepherd who shows you who you can be, it changes everything. There was a woman, a very special woman in Israel. Her name was Geula Cohen. Geula Cohen, some of you may remember remember her. She passed away probably a year or two ago. Very special woman. She served in the Israeli Knesset, the Israeli Parliament for decades. Her son still serves him as Sekhiya Negbi. And she was a very idealistic Jewish woman, a great speaker, a great writer, an orator. She was a feisty, confident, strong woman with a lot of conviction, a lot of faith. She loved Eretz Israel. She loved Israel. She loved the Jewish people. She was also a journalist for many years. And she came to see the Labavitcher Rebbe once. She spent two hours in his room for a private audience. And then she wrote up the interview that she had with the Rebbe in the Israeli newspaper, the Israeli daily, Ma'ariv. And I read the article. It was such a moving article. But I still, I don't remember most of the article, but I remember her last paragraph, almost verbatim. It's not verbatim, but it's almost verbatim from my memory. I read the article, I don't know, maybe 25, 30 years ago. Gula Cohen writes as follows. She says, I have met many, many people in my life, many great people in my life, but I want to tell you something that happens when you meet the Lubavitcher Rebbe. She said, you see, when you meet a most brilliant, brilliant man or woman, It's powerful, it's enthralling, it's it's mesmerizing, if you get what they're saying. But at the end of the meeting, she writes, they remain brilliant, and you remain simple. You may meet the most courageous warrior. And at the end of the meeting, even though it's captivating and inspiring, they remain courageous, resilient, and you remain who you are. You may meet one of the greatest leaders, and it's very moving, and you learn so much. But at the end of the meeting, they remain who they are, and you remain who you are. She said, you may meet a holy person, a mystic, a saint, and at the end of the conversation, they remain saintly, and you remain mundane. She said, but it's very different when you sit for two hours in the presence of a Maiman, the presence of somebody who possesses real amuna, real faith, because at the end of those two hours, you are never the same. Ki maamin ma'amin gam becha. Because the one who really believes, believes also in you. So when you leave that encounter, you are a different person, you're a changed person. And she writes, The Lubavitcher Rebbe Hu chacham, Brilliant man. He's a warrior. He's a leader. He's also a mystic. He's a saint. He's a holy man. And many, many other qualities. But above all, Hu Ma'amin Ba'am Yisrael. He's a believer in the people. And when somebody is a believer in the people, it allows them to believe in themselves. That is, people ask me, how is the Rebbe's influence still so powerful? What is it? More than 25 years after his passing. 1994 to 2020 21, You would think. Okay, great man. Unbelievable person. We're grateful to Hashem for sending down such an Hashem, But the influence needs to wane. The fact is that it's not that way. It's a fascinating phenomenon. People today are appreciating the Rebbe more than during his lifetime. His influence has grown much more than during his lifetime in many different ways. What's the reason for this? And I think one of the reasons, at least one of the reasons, I can't tell you all the reasons, I don't know, but one of them for sure is because when you came in contact with the Rebbe during his physical lifetime, this is what you came away with. Those words of the Gula coin, HaMa'amin Ma'amin Gambecha. The Rebbe's greatness, you know what the Rebbe's real greatness was? that it was not about his greatness, it was about your greatness. I once heard from the late British Chief Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs was a great man, he was one of the great leaders of our times, but he wasn't always on that path towards Jewish leadership. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who served as the Chief Rabbi of Great Britain for 22 years, and then as a world-class orator and writer and and author and professor in many universities, and he just passed away this past year, Shabbos Parshas Vayera Chav Cheshvan, the 20th day of the month of Cheshvan. Just, uh, what is it? Shabbos Vayera, middle of Cheshven, Kislev Tevis, around two and a half months ago. Big loss for the Jewish world. (coughs) We all learned from Rabbi Sachs. We appreciated his wisdom, his books, his writings. But I want to share something that he once shared. It was in 1968. He was a student in Cambridge University. And he came from a very traditional British Jewish family, but no Jewish education. by sex, I don't know if you know, he did not know how to speak Hebrew. <laughs> he was in Israel and he apologized. He says, you know, he knew a few words here and there, but he didn't grow up. With Yiddishkeit, he, they went Shabbat to Shul. Of course, he grew up with a Jewish identity. His father, he said, was a very you know, dedicated and, and loyal Jew, but he didn't grow up with a serious Jewish education. He went through the public school system and the high school non-Jewish system, and then he went to Cambridge. And much later in life did he go to yeshiva. He went to Kfar Chabad for a year, and it began in 68. He said he was on a Greyhound bus, and he visited around 50 Jewish leaders in the United States of America. And then... He visited also the Lubavitcher Rebbe. It was a meeting in the middle of the night, which was very unique. He said around 2 o'clock in the morning. And he asked his questions. He had a lot of questions. He was a 20-year-old student. He was born in 1948. This is 1968. And he said that's when he was so profoundly affected, he decided to get much more involved in Yiddishkeit. And ultimately the Rebbe guided him to go learn and to become a leader and to become a teacher, to become a rabbi's rabbi. And ultimately he became the British chief rabbi and a great spokesman for the Jewish people, for Israel, for Torah. But he once shared as follows, that when he sat in the Rebbe's room, he understood what humility was. It says about Moses, he was the most humble person who alive. How could that be? I can understand somebody who's not so great, they can be humble. But yet, Moshe Rabbeinu, how can he be so humble? And he said that when he was sitting in the Rebbe's room, he understood. Because what he saw was, and I'm quoting him again, not verbatim, but the theme comes from him. He said, what he saw was that the Rebbe had the ability to be able to serve as my mirror for the two hours that I sat with him. What does it mean to serve as my mirror? Very often, he explained, when you're sitting with somebody, I'm sitting with you, and we're having a conversation. You say something, and I say something. You ask, and I answer. And I may be a very fine person, and a kind person, and a giving person, but ultimately, I want to impress you. (laughs) And you want to impress me, or you want to learn from me, and I want to teach you. So there's a give and take. And a wonderful interaction. And I want to make sure to come up with good answers. And eloquent answers. To be able to impress you. To be able to inspire you. To be able to make sure that you like me. Or are inspired by me, etc. This is part of the regular, ordinary human condition. He said when he was sitting with the Rebbe. He realized that the Rebbe was not there. The Rebbe's ego was completely absent. The Rebbe was actually like a mirror. What does a mirror do? I look in a mirror And the mirror just shows me what I look like. That's the function of a mirror. The mirror is reflecting back to me my own face. He said, I realized that the Rebbe saw himself and he saw his function at those moments when we were sitting together as my mirror. All he was trying to do was help me see who I am. Not help me see who he is. Help me see who I am. What a blessing it is to be in the presence of a person who doesn't tell you who they are, but they tell you who you are. That when you look at them, you could see yourself in a new and powerful way. There's a beautiful Hasidic teaching about Joseph. Joseph is in the house of his master Potiphar in Egypt, a young 17-year-old slave. And the wife of Potiphar takes a liking to him because of his handsomeness and his beauty. And we all know the story. She tries to seduce him again and again on a daily basis. Lay with me. And Joseph keeps on refusing. And then there's one day nobody is home. And it says Joseph comes home to do his work. And the sages tell us in Tractate Saita, page 36, that Joseph actually succumbed to the temptation. It was just impossible to refuse it for longer. And he surrendered. And what happens then is he is about to engage in this promiscuous relationship. And the sages say, yaakov oviv Suddenly in the window, in the distance, he could see the image of his father Jacob. And that's what empowers him and emboldens him to abstain. Vayonos She's holding on to his cloak and he flees. He escapes outdoors. And because she was holding his cloak, it tore and she had the evidence that she needed to incarcerate him in prison. What does it mean he saw the image of his father in the window? What does it mean? What is the meaning of this? Where did he come to see the image of his father in the window suddenly? What is that? There's a beautiful interpretation. At that moment, Joseph saw his own image from the perspective of Jacob, his father. At that moment, he had an image, not of who he was, but of who he can be. Not of who he was, but of who he was called on to be. Or in other words, not of who he was externally, but of who he was internally. You know, I could look at myself and see myself in very many different ways. I could look at my posture and see myself in a very small and tiny way. When the Rebbe looked at you, he saw a posture whose head originates in heaven and whose legs are grounded on the earth. You remember the image of that ladder, Jacob's ladder? Jacob at night, running away from his parents' home, from Esau, dreams of a ladder. The ladder is standing on the earth, but the top of the ladder is reaching heaven. Jacob would be the man, the father, who would father the entire Jewish nation, all of the 12 tribes. We are all descendants of Yaakov. In fact, we carry his name. Yisrael, we are all part of Am Yisrael, Bnei Yisrael, Torah Yisrael, Eretz Yisrael. Israel is the second name of Jacob. And that dream would define the meaning of Jewish life, the meaning of Jewish existence, the meaning of being a Jew. You are the latter. Your posture is the sulam. You are that ladder. I am that ladder. On one hand, we have two feet on the ground. We are earthly people. We are filled with trauma. We are filled with insecurities. I could speak for myself. I can't speak for all of you. We have big egos. We deal with narcissism, with depression, with mood disorders. Some of us with personality disorders, with mental illness, with despondency, with dejection. We deal with toxic thoughts and sometimes with deep loneliness, fear, insecurity and pain. I can go on, but you can discuss the rest with your therapist or with your mother-in-law. We are grounded on earth. We are earthly people. A part of us is very physical and mundane and brute. But whenever you heard the Rebbe speak, whenever you saw him, you were not seeing so much of him you were seeing much more of yourself that is in so many ways what set him apart you know i think back today very often to the rebbe speaking for hours as you know and i i was when i was Shabbos by you if you remember we had a whole long shmooz was about this <laughs> i was asked to speak 45 minutes, I don't know if the Rebbe remembers. (laughs) And the people wanted, we were telling stories, I was telling stories of my youth by the Rebbe, and everybody wanted to hear more and more, so it went on from 45 minutes, it went almost three hours. (laughs) But I had the privilege of growing up in Brooklyn at the feet of the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And from a very young age, My father and brother would schlep me to the Fabring, and even when I was very young, and I couldn't understand, the Rebbe spoke in Yiddish. And the Rebbe gave long talks, and they were complicated and deep, and it was not for a six-year-old. Sometimes the Rebbe would speak to children. His language was very different. But those long Shabbosim, they were long presentations and hard presentations. But I was there for so many years, I started to pick up the language. You know, when you hear something as a very young boy, it becomes part of your vocabulary. And whenever I think back to any fabrengen I stood at, any public event where the Rebbe spoke for hours and hours and hours, that sensation comes back. He was never speaking about himself. He was always speaking about me, about you, about us. When you heard the Rebbe or saw the Rebbe, he was a mirror. That was his unique humility. He met people. He knew my function is to be a mirror. I want to reflect back to them who they really are, who they can be. Because he understood that one of our greatest challenges in life is we perceive ourselves as angry, miserable, petty, small, valueless, inconsequential people who are just trying to survive. And the Rebbe said, no, you're not a survivor. You're a chilek eleka mimal mamish. You're a piece of God. You are infinity. So why are we trying to survive? Because you are infinity that was sent down into a finite world. That's why you need to survive. Not because you're small and needy. You're infinity. You are the ambassador, the shliach of Hashem in this world. You're a piece of God. You're a fragment of heaven. You are a ray of Ein Soif. We have a principle in Judaism, Shlucho Yisholadam Kemaisai. It's one of the Rebbe's favorite lines from Talmud Kedushin 41. And we learned it out from this week's portion, the O'ayse. The representative, the shliach of somebody, is K'mo is like the person who sent him. In Judaism, that's the power, the real power of attorney, the real shlich. I designate you as my ambassador, as my representative, as my emissary. And you assume my identity, so to speak. Shluchai shel adam ha'elion the Rebbe would say, based on the vayikra. God sent each and every one of us down here as his ambassador. So we embody and represent divine qualities. In that sense, at your core, You're invincible. You're full of power and confidence and joy and infinite potential and possibility. You're full of light. You're full of godliness. You're not finite. You're not small. You're infinity that was sent down into a finite world. That's why I have physical needs. That's why I have fears. That's why I have insecurities. Why was infinity sent down into a physical world, to a finite world? In order to transform the finite into the infinite. I was sent down into a small world to transform smallness into greatness, to reveal the fusion between heaven and earth, between spirituality and physicality, between the soul and the body, between the higher and the lower, between the inner and the outer, between the external layer of life and the internal spiritual heartbeat of life. Don't ever, the Rebbe would say, underestimate the height of your posture stand straight the Rebbe did not like when people did not stand straight when they did not stand erect when their posture was bent and caved in I don't mean physically It's also good to make sure that your posture is not bent physically. Some of us sit by the tables. I like, can you sit like this. <laughs> it's not healthy. You got to be able. That's what my, uh, my guys always tell me. You have to sit straight. Yeah. You know, you got to sit straight. The spine, the chuta has to be straight. Like when we daven. What do we say by davening? You have to know before whom you stand. Don't be bent in. Don't be caved in. Your head is in the heavens. You are a reflection of heaven. You're a reflection of God. You're not a victim of circumstances. You're not an abused person. Sometimes I have pain. Sometimes things happen to me. But the Rebbe would say, don't let those things define you ever. You're a shliach of the Reboi Shalom. You're an ambassador of Hashem to light up the world. And with every thought, word, and action, you can promote redemption. You can bring the world a step closer to redemption. Yes, I have challenges. I have to work them through. But never become submerged in the challenge to the point that I'm overwhelmed. And I feel Completely paralyzed. You know, my dearest friends, I just want to share with you, it it just happened. So, and, and, and the woman it happened to, she sent me an email with the story. So, I just want to share it with you. Over the years, these things happen constantly. Do you know, it literally just happened, and it shows you the connected, the, how we're connected. It teaches you the impact of a real visionary and a leader. It also teaches you how to look at yourself and how to look at another Jew and how to look at the world. And it just happened literally a few days ago. I live here in Muncie, New York, in Rockland County. And there's a couple. They're one of the pillars, wonderful pillars in our community, Mr. and Mrs. Gittler, Eliezer and Brandy Gittler. And they went for a few days, you know, during the winter, there's a mitzvah. There's a biblical commandment that we migrate to Florida. That's the biblical commandment in America, maybe in Canada also. I know you also have your cold winters a little colder than we. But wherever you are, so we all have our cold winters. And Jews like to migrate the migration of the Willoughbys and there's the migration of the Jews to Florida or to Cancun. So this Gittler couple went for a few days to Daytona Beach in Florida. And you know who else came to visit them? They have children who live in Freiburg, Germany. I don't know how many of you were to Freiburg, Germany. Rabbi Yankee and Javi Gittler are the Chabad ambassadors, the Chabad Shluchem to Freiburg. And they came to be with their parents for a few days in Daytona Beach. In the morning, they come to Daven. They come to shul, to the synagogue. In Florida, you could come to the synagogues to Davin, of course. Social distancing, everything done according to the guidelines of the health officials. So nobody, God forbid, should be put in danger. And they're praying there in the Chabad, the beautiful Chabad center of Daytona Beach, where I was not long ago, before Corona, led by Rabbi Shalom and Rebitson Cement. Rabbi Shalom Cement is the Chabad Shleech in Daytona, built a beautiful, beautiful Chabad Center in Daytona. And the Freiburg Shluchem, Rabbi Yankee and Chavi Getler, were there in Shul. Rabbi Cement just lost his father, right before Yom Kippur. Erev Yom Kippur, many of us remember him, Rabbi Chaim Cement, who was a Chabad ambassador in Boston for 60, 70 years. I think, I think since the 1940s, for around Early 1950s, almost 70 years, between 60 and 70 years. He was the principal of the Lubavitch School in Boston, a day school called Achet Mimim in Boston. Rabbi Chaim Cement and Rabbi Sholem Cement in Daytona Beach is saying Kaddish for him. So the Gitlers from Freiburg met the cements from Daytona and he asks Rabbi Cement, would you grow up? And he says, Boston. Rabbi Yankee looks at Chavi, his wife from Freiburg, and says, Got to tell him the story. We have our Bistonian story. And they begin to tell him the story. There's one night, Yankee Gittler went to the grocery store. He needed to pick up a few things for the home in Freiburg, it was late at night, he feels a tap on his shoulder. He turns around. There's an older gentleman there who in a perfect English says, you're a rabbi? And Rabbi Gittler says, Yes, I am a rabbi. Rabbi Gittler was a little startled. He seems like a real American, American man, speaking perfect English with no accent, with no German accent. He's there late at night in this grocery store. Who are you? Where do you come from? What are you doing here? Turns out this man's name is Morris. He has been married and divorced twice, Both wives were not Jewish. He moved to the outskirts of Freiburg in Germany, and he married a third woman, a non-Jewish wife. He was startled to see a rabbi in a grocery store in Freiburg. Morris thought he won't meet a Jew, certainly he won't meet a rabbi, in the middle of the night in a grocery store. Yankee said, Come to Chabad." Come to Chabad. And the man said, you know what? I want to come visit. And he started to frequent the Chabad house of Rabbi Yanki and Chavi Gittler in Freiburg regularly. He loved it. It became his new spiritual home. He came for Shabbat. He came for holidays. He came for meals. He came for learning and for davening. He became part of the Chabad house family. Rabbi Yanki and Chavi and their beautiful children did what all the shluchim do to their fellow Jews around the world. From New Jersey to Montreal, from Hawaii to Alaska, from Finland to Iceland to Tokyo, from New Zealand to Sydney, from Moscow to Warsaw, from Johannesburg to New York, from Brazil to Los Angeles, from Uzbekistan and Bidabijan to London, Paris, Jerusalem, Tel Aviv and Elat. What do shluchim do? They open their homes and they open their hearts and they make everyone feel that they are loved unconditionally, like family. And this is what Yankee and Javi Gitler did for this Morris in Freiburg. Time passes and Morris comes to house, but Yankee sees that something is sitting on his chest. He's withdrawn, he's introspective, he's reflective. He's thinking about something. He's very serious. And one day he comes over and he says, Rabbi, I need you to make me a promise. He says, what? Bury me according to Jewish tradition. I want to die and be buried as a Jew. Yankee says, why are we talking about your death? He said, promise me you're going to do that. And he did. Morris came back to Yankee. He was already looking weak and exhausted. And he had a tattered Hebrew book. Yankee opens it. It was called Tikun Lak'ayrim. What's a Tikkun Lak'ayrim? I don't know if I have it I would show it to you. Tikkun Lak'ayrim is a book that people who read the Torah in the synagogue prepare from it before. As you know, when you read the Torah... There's no musical notes. So how does the Balcore know what to say? <singing> how do they know which note goes to which word? Did you ever think about that? They have to memorize it. So there's a special book that has on one side of the page the... Words the way they're written in the Torah scroll without any notes. And on the other side, it has musical notes, so they could practice and memorize it when they come to read the Torah on Shabbos or Monday and Thursday. Morris came back with such a book called the Tikkun L'Kair. And you know what happens? He opens it up, and he starts reading through the Torah beautifully, fluently, great voice, Great touch for music, and he literally knew all the portions of the Torah, and he held that book like he was holding his own baby, with such reverence and with such pride. He began laning, and he literally went through page after page. He was reading the Torah as a pro, as though he was been a been a balcori in the synagogue for seventy years. Yankee says Morris. Who are you? And what's your story? Can you spill the beans? He couldn't hold back any longer. And he says, I was a young boy. I grew up in Boston. Boston had a very large Jewish community, still does. My mother worked in the office of a local Lubavitch yeshiva. It was headed by a man named Rabbi Chaim Sement. She was his secretary I learned in public school, but before my Bar Mitzvah, my mother said, I have a special rabbi I want you to meet. And she brought me into the office of Rabbi Chaim Semen, the Rabbi Shlich, to Boston. And Rabbi Cement was the first person to teach me Hebrew. He taught me how to read Hebrew. He taught me how to understand Hebrew. And then, over the year before my Bar Mitzvah, he taught me how to read from the Torah. And then he taught me all the melodic tunes, the beautiful notes with which we read every word of the Torah, and he prepared me to read the Torah at my Bar Mitzvah. He said, my mother fell very ill at the time, and I was a 13-year-old boy, and my mother was so sick. And Rabbi Semen told my mother, don't worry, I'm going to consult the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, to see what to do. He did. The Rebbe suggested that they add the name Chaya to my mother. Chaya means life. My mother lived for another 20 years after my Bar Mitzvah. It was a miraculous recovery. One day, Rabbi Semen tells us, we're going to visit the Labavitcher Rebbe in New York. And he takes a whole group of Bostonian boys and he brings us to the Labavitcher Rebbe. We meet the Rebbe. The Rebbe blesses us. The Rebbe guides us. The Rebbe inspires us. And then Rabbi Semen tells me, Morris, I'm going to buy you a special gift here in Brooklyn, something we can't get back in Boston. And he buys me this tikkun, this beautiful big book that would help me read the Torah. He said, you're so good at it. You really have a skill for it. You really have a niche for it. This is yours. He says, that was so meaningful to me. I never parted from this book. He says, but you know, You grow up, and you drift away. And I drifted away from Yiddishkeit. And I married out of the faith. I had two non-Jewish children. Both of my marriages failed. And I decided to enter into a third marriage, which has worked out nicely, here in the mountains of Freiburg, Germany. But even though I'm not divorced... I met you, I saw you in the store. And this deep longing came back to me. And when I started to learn with you and come to the Chabad house and hear the reading of the Torah, it all came back to me. And I realized that that tikkun never left me. I always took it into all three marriages despite my complete alienation from Judaism and Jewish life, that tikkun that Rabbi Semen bought for me in Brooklyn when we were by the Rebbe, when I was a little kid, when I was a bar mitzvah boy, stayed with me. Morris then told Yankee, I am ill. I've been exhausted. I'm not feeling well. And I don't know how much more time I have. Good night. He left. And soon Yankee heard that Morris was in the hospital. And he asked that he visits him. And Yankee came to visit Morris in the hospital. There were a few other people in the room. Morris asked that everybody leave the room. Rabbi Yankee Gitler was there alone with Morris, who was now quite ill. And together, Morris said, let's say the Shema together. And together they said, Shema Yisrael, HaShem HaLekeinu, HaShem Echad. Morris wanted to say the confession prayer, the vidui prayer that we say before death, if we have the ability to, and he did. He then asked Yankee to sing Jewish songs with him. And Rabbi Gitler, holding the hand of this Yiddish Hashem, sang many Jewish songs with him. Morris looked at him and said, Remember how I want to get buried? The Yankee said, yeah, you will have a proper Jewish burial as a traditional Jew. Seconds later, Morris slipped away. He died with perfect peace and serenity. It was clear. It was a flat line. Morris was gone. His wife, I guess, heard the ringing. She came rushing in. She realized the nurse, the doctor, it's over. He passed away. She looked at Rabbi Gittler and she said, we have to do this funeral immediately. Let's do it immediately. Let's get all the arrangements done and let's get him buried. Yankee looked at her and you know, in the non-Jewish tradition, they don't rush. By Jews, we do it as fast as possible. But other people, they don't rush. What's the urgency? She looked at Yankee and she said, my children ordered me to make sure that their father is cremated. And that's what I was planning to do. But after seeing the look in his eyes when he met you, after seeing what you meant for him, I can't do that. I know that my husband would want a real Jewish burial. And we got to do this fast because I don't want to fight in the family. Let's just bury him so we could prevent any problems. They took the body. They cleansed it. They put it in the mikveh in the traditional Jewish way. And ten Jews, a minion of local Jews, accompanied Morris to his final resting place in the Jewish cemetery of Freiburg, Germany. The young Jewish Bostonian boy returned his soul to its maker while he was clutching his precious tikkun. That was the book he was holding on to when he died, the one that Rabbi Cement has given to him in Brooklyn when he was by the Rebbe. That tikkun somehow meant everything for him. It was his link to the past, and in his mind it was his link to the future as he died clutching it with his hands. With tears in his eyes, Rabbi Shalom Cement in Daytona turns to Rabbi Yaakov and Chavi Gitler and he says, Rabbi Chaim Cement was my father who just passed away a few months ago and I just finished saying Kaddish for him. And you know, for me, this is just one small example of how to live, of how to see yourself, how to see your mission in life, how to see your role. The Rebbe taught thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of his disciples, of his students, of his Hasidim. And any Jew who wanted to listen, never ever underestimate the height of the posture of a Jew. Never underestimate your own heights and the heights of somebody else. Never give up on a soul. Never allow darkness to take over your imagination. Never stop believing that we are ambassadors of infinity to bring a gu'ula to the world. Don't get stuck in the quagmire of confusion, of depression, of despondency. Allow yourself always to see the end goal, the vision. Realize why we are here and that we're never victims to our circumstances. The Rebbe taught us, in one word, who we are, who we can be, what we could see in other people, and what we could see in the world. The world, he would always say, is a garden, waiting to be elevated, waiting to be inspired, waiting, waiting to be sublimated. You know, my dearest friends, at this special night the night of Yot the night that really commemorates the Rebbe's leadership over the past 70 years. It is so important to remember what that leadership was about. It was not about the Rebbe's leadership for 70 years. It was about the fact that the Rebbe believed in the capacity of every single one of us to be a leader, especially during times of confusion and uncertainty, when a storm and a tsunami hits the planet. It is so important to have that voice of serenity, that voice of reassurance, that voice of calmness, that anchor when you know that you're a ladder that reaches heaven and reaches the earth, you are the link between heaven and earth. Our job is to serve as that everlasting link, not to run away from reality, not to be naive, not to escape, not to flee into denial, to remain grounded, boots on the ground, but not to allow ourselves to get lost in the storm, to remember who we are, what we are rooted in, what we represent, so that we could serve as anchors for ourselves, our families, our communities, our world, to be able to infuse people with that vision of Einoid Malvadri, the vision that everything is one, that we are all manifestations of oneness, that we have to dig and excavate the light that's inside, that I have to remove the external layers of filth and dirt and politics and divisiveness and fragmentation and fear and my own self-loathing and self-shame and see that light in myself and others until the world will be filled with that light and the whole earth will be filled with divine wisdom like water covers the sea when the gu'ula, the ultimate redemption, will indeed materialize speedily in our days, and the whole world will be one for eternity. Thank you very much. Let me take some questions now from our dear friends. Question number one. What would be the Lubavitcher Rebbe's advice now? I am stressed. I am anxious. I'm overwhelmed. I'm full of fear. I'm confused. What would be the Rebbe's advice now? Can you be a comforting voice in the face of uncertainty? A calm voice in the storm? So, I'm going to tell you a little story of the Talmud, a little story of the Gemara, and I think it's very, very applicable to our lives. It's a story in Tractate Yevamis, page 121, Tavkuf HaFalof. One of the greatest Talmudic sages was a man named Rabban Gamliel. Rabban Gamliel said he was once traveling on a ship, he lived in the second century. He was the leader of the great Jewish Supreme Court. And he says, I saw another ship that's been wrecked. My heart grieved, especially, because one of the passengers on the ship I knew. He was one of the greatest Torah sages of the time, Rabbi Akiva. And I realized that we just lost him. He said, I reached land, I resumed my studies, I came into the yeshiva, to the Jewish study hall, And who do I see sitting before me, discussing halachic matters with me? I see Rabbi Akiva. I look at Rabbi Akiva, I say, my son, how did this happen? And I want to quote to you the words of the Talmud in Hebrew. Rabbi Akiva said to me, which means Rabbi Akiva said, Aboard from the ship came my way. I clung to it. And when each wave came surging towards me, I bowed my head, letting it pass over me. Kol gal Every wave that came, I bowed my head, I let it pass over me, and then I lifted up my head. That is how I survived. What's the point of this Talmudic story? Not just a cute story, not just an interesting story. In this one-liner, Rabbi Kiva, one of the greatest sages in Jewish history, gave us perspective on life. All of us confront, once in a while, raging waves that come over us. All of us sometimes experience being in a ship that has been broken. We feel alone. We feel endangered. We feel submerged and frigid, and angry and tumultuous waters. Rabbi Akiva said you have to learn how to wave to the waves. Ninatilai, I waved with my head. Don't resist the changes in your life. Learn to embrace them. Don't fight the waves. Allow yourself to make peace with them, to welcome them, to find the opportunities that lay in them, and then you will survive and thrive. If you ever speak to surfers... The real art of surfing is you never fight the waves. You follow their dance. You follow their rhythm. You dance to their beat. You don't fight them. Then you can lose. And you're in a state of aggression. You have to embrace them. You have to go with the waves. You know, many of us have certain expectations for life. We all do. We create a certain trajectory, what life is supposed to look like what my marriage is supposed to look like, what my children are supposed to look like, what my job is supposed to look like, what I'm supposed to look like. And then when it doesn't work out that way, we become so disoriented. We become so stressed out. We feel wrecked. We feel abandoned. We're always battling the waves. We're angry at the waves. Rabbi Akiva says, no, 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 no. Take a deep breath and welcome each wave. Bow your head to it. Realize that this is your space We always want to be somewhere else. We are living in a difficult time. There are waves coming over us. I could fight the waves or I can really take a deep breath and ask what does God want from me right here, right now. There's an opportunity here. The Rebbe would always teach. We never end up in places. We're sent to places. There is a shlichus here. If I have to be quarantined at home It's because something has to heal in my home. This is an opportunity to work on my marriage. It's an opportunity to work on myself. It's an opportunity to work on my relationship with my children. You say, yeah, but it's very stressful. I know it's stressful. But if instead of fighting the stress, I can embrace the reality and really work with it. And I know it's not so easy. It's easier said than done because I'm feeling stressed and I'm feeling disoriented and I'm angry and you really have to ground yourself. You have to learn how to breathe. You have to learn how to meditate. You have to learn how to pray. You have to learn how to surrender. But most importantly, with all of that, I have to be able to look at it and not run away from it and then see what this can teach me. See how I can become a better person from this. I have to come at it from a place of inner, inner serenity and tranquility. Don't allow the stress to become you. You observe the stress. You observe the anxiety. We're back to our ladder model. I am deeper than my stress. I can observe it. I can contain it. I don't have to be defined by it. And I can ground myself to the point where I can wave to it. I don't fight it. I feel it. I make space for it. I respect it. I have compassion for it. And then it doesn't have to take me over because I could contain it. You know the rule in life, right? If you want to grow, you have to be willing to stretch. You know, when you do stretches, when you do Pilates, sometimes they hurt. But they put you in shape. We're all being stretched now. Allow yourself to be stretched. Allow yourself all those emotions that come up with the stretchedness. They will teach you so much about yourself. Next question. What would the Rebbe say today about the crazy political divides, especially in America, with Trump and Biden, Republicans and Democrats, which split the country, and we are all affected by it in one way or another? even those of us who live in different places are affected by America. All of us are affected. Jews are, of course, affected. What would the Rebbe say about all the animosity, the mistrust, the politics, the fighting, the elections, how it came about, and so forth? Listen, I I cannot say what the Rebbe would say. I am not a prophet, and I'm not the son of a prophet. But I will say, and I think this is important to say, that the Rebbe did have a certain approach that I saw and I heard and I observed and I read over the years. And perhaps it's very much applicable to today's world. And that is, the Rebbe was very, very wise and very, very careful. On one hand, he was a very strong believer in The fact that the United States of America was built based on the Judaic timeless values. The value of family, the value of faith, the value of community, the value of Judaic morality. The Rebbe was a tremendous advocate. He felt that children have to be taught values. They have to be taught right from wrong the fact that the founding fathers and the early pilgrims were people saturated with faith, and they built a country that should be not free from religion, not freedom from religion, but freedom of religion, giving people the right to serve God according to their conscience and convictions, but a country that's based on responsibility, not just on privileges but and rights also. But what? where are our rights coming from? Our rights are coming from because we were endowed by our Creator with these absolute gifts and that each and every person is carved in the image of God and that people have to know we're responsible to God. So those are values that the Rebbe always spoke about and felt we have to ingrain in children, Jewish children, non-Jewish children, to really create a much better, a more moral and safe country. But the Rebbe was always careful never to get entangled by politics because politics may be a means to a higher end. But very often, politics becomes very divisive, very egocentric, filled with a lot of hate and distortions and lies. So they never made sure, never ever become entangled with politics. You can have your views, everybody has their views. You obviously have to vote for a certain candidate. But Rebbe was always careful, both when it came to Israel, when it came to America, and all situations. Our goal as Jews is to light up the world. We want to bring out unity. We want to teach people to be able to learn how to love and accept and be tolerant and, most importantly, realize that each and every one of us has a responsibility to each other and to God to make this world a place of goodness and kindness. Don't get entangled in other things. Because we don't worship people. People have vices, and people have virtues. People have flaws, and people have beautiful things. And to demonize people and right away put them into a camp, and another camp, we create stereotypes, we box them into certain confined places, and there's no growth anymore, and we cut ourselves off. That's not the way infinity operates. When you know who you are, you're an ambassador of God in this world, my job is to bring out the best in people. My job is to help people bring out the best in themselves. My job is to be able to listen to people carefully so I can understand them. I can empathize with them. They can feel that I am their friend. I am their brother. I am not their enemy. And then slowly... I can help them heal, just like I can help myself heal. So we always have to listen to each other. We have to communicate to each other, even if there are disagreements. Disagreements must be done with respect. And it's very important not to allow your values and your perspectives to become entangled with personal agendas and inner animosity and hatred and divisiveness. And it's very easy to go down that path. So I think this was a very important distinction that the Rebbe always made. You saw with the Rebbe himself, he knew how to disagree without becoming disagreeable. There were people the Rebbe disagreed with about serious issues, but he never became disagreeable. He never would write them off or demonize them or stereotype them, and I can't talk to you. It was never personal. It never became about personal judgment, judging you. It's really when you're very healthy inside You can embrace people and see the good in them, even if you really, really disagree with them. But you have to come from a place of very deep inner confidence and spirituality. Another question. Why did the Rebbe never visit Israel? (laughs) It's a wonderful question. So (laughs) the real answer that I can give you is I don't really know. I don't know. I could tell you a few things that the Rebbe shared over the years with people who asked him the question. Is that the only exclusive answer? There's probably much more to it. That's why I say I don't really know. But there are a few things that the Rebbe told people. Number one, he felt that his reach could be more successful if he is outside of Israel, in the United States of America, especially that the Rebbe had very strong work that was going on in the Soviet Union and in other Arab countries. And he may have felt that it would be compromised. Number two, perhaps the Rebbe felt that those years, at least, the United States of America had a certain broadness and successful prosperity that would allow him to function more and to ultimately create the revolution he wanted to create throughout the whole world. The Rebbe also said that the captain of the ship can't just abandon the ship before every last passenger is safe. And the Rebbe felt that for rabbis, leaders, educators, activists, teachers who are influential in America, where there is so much assimilation, or Canada, or Europe, or Asia, or Africa, or Australia, all the continents, to leave their posts and go to Israel, he felt was wrong because it's not like we're going to bring all the Jews from America and Canada and everywhere else to Israel. They're going to remain there. So the Rebbe felt that anyone who was in a leadership position can not just abandon the flock and say, I want to go to Israel. You have to really see What is that going to do to the Jewish community there and how will they be affected? And perhaps he felt that his own leaving might be the wrong thing. Halachically, there's also a problem of going to Israel and leaving Israel. So that's why the Rebbe didn't want to visit Israel. These are some of the issues. There may be much more that I don't know. The only... This is a feeling I have. I'm not saying this as a fact. The feeling I have is... The Rebbe, like really great Jewish leaders, understood that until Mashiach comes, we're in exile. And he maybe felt that going to Israel for him c- could appear as though, you know, the story is over. We have achieved our goal. And the Rebbe felt maybe until the last Jew doesn't go to Eretz Israel, he can't go to Eretz Yisrael. Until Mashiach doesn't come, and the world is redeemed, and the Beis HaMikdash is rebuilt, he doesn't have a right to go to It would be like a form of spiritual escapism into a beautiful place. But he must be in the trenches, fighting the war of assimilation, and fighting the war against exile to bring the Gula. This may be one of the reasons, but again, I, I cannot give a conclusive absolute reason. What I do know is that he may have physically not visited Israel, But his mind and heart was with Israel 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. The way this man was concerned about Israel's security, Israel's success, Israel's prosperity, Israel's future. And of course, Israel's inhabitants and army was something that's the stuff of legend. The stuff of legends. We'll take another question. Let me take another question. (coughs) Excuse me. What do you think would be the Rebbe's message now during lockdown and during coronavirus when there's no shuls and most of us are in our homes and even though the shul's open but it's still very limited and all the prayers have to happen in our homes? What would the Rebbe say about that the great institution of synagogues came under siege? It's a great question. And the answer I would say is... Like everything, there is a challenge, a crisis, and an opportunity. And I think the Rebbe's approach might have been this. When shul's closed down, we could say the shul's closed down. It's horrible. And it is. We want to be in shul. We want to be in shul. Even if we are in shul, we want to be in shul like we were before. But there's always an opportunity. The opportunity is God wants us to turn our homes into shul's. That's the opportunity now. Remember, every crisis is an opportunity. This is the time in history when we're challenged to turn our homes into sanctuaries. Every one of our homes needs to become a little shul, a little Beis HaMikdash. That's the ultimate purpose. Mikdash <laughs> Torah says, God says, build for me a sanctuary and I will dwell among them. Not in it, among them. So the commentators say, because God doesn't want to just dwell in buildings. He wants to dwell in your heart. He wants to dwell in your dining room, in your living room, in your kitchen, in your bedroom, in your family room, in your foyer. This is today our calling, to infuse holiness into our homes. To be able to turn our bedrooms and our kitchens and our dining rooms into our homes, into divine sanctuaries, by praying there, by learning there by doing acts of mitzvahs and love there, by creating an ambiance in our home that is full of Yiddishkeit. And I think we all need to do that today. For our children, for our grandchildren, for ourselves, depends on your situation. But make sure that your homes become beautiful places of celebration, of life, of love, of communication. Even if there's arguments, but it's places where we connect, where we work on ourselves, where we bond. We dance together, we cry together, we laugh together, we sing together, we eat together, we drink together, and we celebrate Jewish life together. This is our challenge today. Turn your home into the center of Jewish life. That's what we really, really need. So then when we go back to shul, full force, we'll take our homes with us. We're not going to leave our homes and go to shul. The shuls and our homes will ultimately become fused. And maybe this is a great preparation for Mashiach, when every single home will be an extension of the Beis HaMikdash. Every single home will be a home filled with divine light. Because that's the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is not just to have shuls as holy places, but that everybody's heart and everybody's home becomes a holy and a sacred, a sacred place. Next question. I know that over the years, there were people who had a lot of disagreements with the Rebbe. The Rebbe had opposition. Chabad had opposition. What do you think was the main reason for this opposition? And why has it faded away? It's a good question. Very good question. Um, really, really push, push, push comes to shove. I mean, if you really, if you want to get down to it, I think the most honest and objective answer is that I think a lot of people misunderstood the Rebbe and they misunderstood his vision and they misunderstood his methods and they misunderstood what he was trying to accomplish. I think that is the truth. And as the years go by, people just recognize, even people who erred in the past, I think they recognize more and more who the Rebbe was, what he represented. You know, I think that's one aspect. I think another aspect is, you know, people saw the loyalty of the students of the Rebbe to the Rebbe, and they were afraid, this is a little maybe too much. And I think they didn't realize what Rabbi Sachs once said. People thought that the Rebbe tried to create followers, and the Rebbe really was trying to create leaders. I go back to what I discussed. The Rebbe really wanted to be a mirror to show people who they are. The loyalty to the Rebbe, and the love to the Rebbe, and the dedication to the Rebbe, I think more than anything else, and I say this very honestly, is because the Rebbe showed people how great they are. So their deep allegiance and dedication to the Rebbe was because the Rebbe embodied and represented really their own deepest aspirational self of what a person could become. In other words, I think people saw in the Rebbe a mirror of their own deepest greatness. And there's nothing like your dedication to your own deepest potential and deepest greatness. I think there's another component maybe, and that is the Rebbe was the smile that God gave the Jewish people after Auschwitz. After the horrible concealment of God's face during Auschwitz, God smiled to the Jewish people. And one of his most beautiful smiles was the soul of the Lubavitcher Rebbe of blessed memory. The Rebbe was a beacon of extraordinary light and wisdom and genius and leadership and a combination of so many talents And so much energy and so much holiness and so many skills in one person is very, very rare. It's very unique. A mind combined with a heart, prophetic vision with deep understanding of how to execute it and implement it in the real world, a profound mystic, Anaka, and an extraordinary scholar in all of Torah and even secular wisdoms, coupled with such a passion and love and leadership skills is very, very rare. And I think when such a light comes into the world, it's hard for many people to appreciate it. It's too big. It's too. It's. it's sometimes too big to appreciate it. It takes sometimes a long time to appreciate it. It happened to Maimonides, the Rambam. It happened to the Tov. It happened to the Alter Rebbe. Sometimes great, great lights are difficult to absorb and appreciate because it demands a lot of humility and it demands for me to open myself up to something new. So either I become very humble in this light, very humble, and sometimes I develop some type of resistance and I think that may also be part of it. These are, these, these are some thoughts. But it's so interesting, you know, Jewish history has a very, very healthy immune system. 50 years after Maimonides passed away, you know, the whole Jewish world declared Moshe Emes veterasay Emes. Same issue with the Baal And other such great, great lights in Jewish history. And I think, you know, as the years move on, I think almost everybody in the Jewish world today recognizes that uh, the impact that the Rebbe had on the Jewish people in our generation, you know, it's hard to know if anybody since after the Second Temple had such an impact, because because the Rebbe impacted every single Jewish community around the globe, or almost every single Jewish community around the globe, in one way or another. And I think the greatest power of it all was that there was really no ego there. He was a real man of God. He saw himself as a conduit, as a conduit for Hashem, just to do Hashem's will. And that's why he can accomplish that, because it was not about him, it was about implementing God's will and revealing that we're all one, we're all part of God's plan. That's how I see it, just from my own limited perspective. My dearest friends, I bless you on this wonderful night that we should be invigorated to be able to not only continue, but to be able to transform and expand our paradigms. To fulfill our missions, each and every one of us in our own unique way, to bring a consciousness of redemption to ourselves. It always begins with ourselves, our homes, our communities, and the world. Thank you very much. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at wwwtheyeshivanet slash donate.